This is Dr. Kara Shepard, and you're listening to Goat Talk with the Goat Doc. Thanks for listening to Goat Talk with the Goat Doc. Sorry for the little bit of a several week hiatus in podcast production. Uh, Things have been absolutely crazy with the dairy build and moving and have a our house is under contract so that is all happening and now we're kind of moving forward with that with the assumption that we have about five weeks I think from tomorrow maybe um to get one two three four yeah about five weeks from tomorrow to get out of our house and we've been working on it but then there's still things that are very intimidating to do like move our big dairy equipment and a piano so it's it's a little stressful so sorry about uh, the little bit of a hiatus here um, but what's going to be coming at you for the next several weeks is going to be a four-part series on gastrointestinal parasites in goats um, I have a presentation for the Southern Maine Dairy Goat Association uh, what's good, what I'm going to say is this weekend, but I think it's going to be be the day that this first podcast episode uh, posts, and uh, I'm going to be going over the whole kind of shebang of what I think about gastrointestinal parasites and management, diagnosis, treatment, all of these things, and then I'm going to record separately the podcasts. I said it's gonna be a four-parter i'm going to do one part per week uh how this is going to come at you is today i'm going to talk about the major types of gastrointestinal parasites in goats uh then i'm going to go over what we've got as far as deworming products and things we can do to decrease our parasite burden uh, part three is going to be like treatment and monitoring strategy strategies. And then part four is going to be parasite misconceptions, things that I and other vets wish that we didn't have to hear about or deal with <laughs> when as far as it goes with uh, GI parasites in goats. So that's how that's going to be coming. And I'm going to do my best to be once a week. I am, like, so much driving right now um, between... It's about an hour and 15-minute drive from the old farm to the new farm. And it's, like, multiple times a week that I'm driving it. So it's kind of... Like, I'm over it. I, I look forward to this all being done. At least at this moment, I, I go back and forth from being, like, super excited and thinking about how everything's going to be great and I'm going to get to implement all these, like, protocols and data collection and things for the goats and getting the... We have the space to set everything up really nice as far as animal handling. But, like, right now I'm just... It's been... God, what has it been now? 14 months? August, September. Uh, yeah, almost 15 months of working on this between 
figuring everything out, lining up the financing and all of the things. So yeah, we're, we're kind of, we can see the light at the end of the tunnel, but it's like uphill and against the wind. Sometimes it feels like that, but we're almost there. We're almost there. We'll keep going. We'll get there. And then maybe have a, a long nap. Anyway, um, if you are enjoying the podcast and you want to come say hi on the internet, you, the website is goatdoc.com. You can click on the contact tab there and it'll send me an email. Um, you can find me on Instagram mostly lately where I'm at goat underscore doc. You can uh, follow me on Twitter where mostly things just bounce from like my website and Instagram to Twitter. But if you like the Twitter, it's at goat.cara. Uh, you can shoot me a regular old email at goat.cara at gmail.com. And that's all the contact ways. And if you are enjoying the podcast and you don't mind to take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player, that is most appreciated because it helps the internet, artificial intelligence, algorithm, Skynet machine realize that people are listening to this little podcast about goats and then it bumps it up in the search results when people are looking for podcasts so that is always super helpful i appreciate it um last thing if you want to go above and beyond and join the small but slowly growing number of really cool people who think that this podcast is worth throwing a couple dollars a month at as far as monetary support you can check out my patreon page which is patreon.com slash goat doc once all this upheaval is over, I hope by the first week of December, or at least at least I won't be driving back and forth like an hour and 15 minutes multiple times a week. Uh, I am looking at forward to spending the month of December getting settled in and making modeling goat protocols that I talked about and also like updating my website and making my Patreon page and doing the, those kinds of things. So, uh, thank you guys, especially you early supporters for bearing with me. I've got a couple people that need to be thanked with a shout out. I will get you guys, um, ASAP, but I'm driving at the moment. I know there's multiple people, so I've got to try to not like touch my phone and drive because Maine just made a new rule about that. Anyway, if you want to support the podcast on Patreon, check that out, patreon.com slash goat doc. And I would like to start doing, I like start to do some more posting on there for Patreon supporters, like just telling you about what I do with my goats and stuff like that, if you're interested. So yeah, thank you guys. Check that out if you're interested. And now I think I'm going to spend the next, however, roughly 20 to 30 minutes talking about the, the major intestinal parasites that I worry about in goats. As always, this podcast is provided with the intent to educate and inform. It is not a substitute for professional medical advice or veterinary care provided by your primary vet, and I strongly encourage you to establish and maintain a current and valid VCPR, veterinarian-client-patient relationship, with your local vet. So, gastrointestinal parasites are one of the major issues that we deal with in the small ruminants, in sheep and goats, um, 
it's a little bit different in in sheep than in goats. We there's some of the treatment strategies that we have to be a little bit more careful of in sheep, which I'll talk about next time. But in we we worry largely about the same kinds of parasites in the two. Um, which parasite is most problematic for you and your herd is a very geograph ge- geography geographically specific and even herd specific issue. So your herd, if you are a closed herd and you're not moving animals around, your animals aren't exposed to other critters, um, however that may be, you're not buying in a new, a lot of new animals, like parasites have to come from somewhere. So they um, can come in with a new animal, they can be picked up from, like kids pick them up from their parents, um, from the ground, from grazing, all these things. Uh, but depending how your animals interact with each other and other animals is going to change their risk factors and also just geographically where you're located is going to be a pretty significant contributor to how um excuse me um to how much your like how aggressive of a parasite management plan you need uh, personally, and I'm going to like knock wood here while I say this, personally for my myself and my own herd, I've been quite lucky in that my herd is effectively closed. Um, I and our herd also like our, our milking does basically went out onto virgin pasture in 2012-ish. So there wasn't, like, it was woods that we turned into pasture over a period of, like, you know, we cleared the trees and stumped the thing and brought in new dirt over a period of months. So there's no animals previously grazing on that area. Um, There's new dirt brought in that, you know, was absent. There are no parasites involved there. So that kind of thing decreases your environmental parasite burden. Uh, the the other thing that I personally have been very lucky with is that we generally still have like a pretty solid winter in south southern Maine, south central Maine. Uh, we get down below freezing for a good part of the year, and that can help break the parasite cycle to a certain degree, at least the burden that's on the pasture. If you are living in like the humid, warm southeastern United States, uh, you probably have like a more significant gastrointestinal parasite issue than I do. Or if you live in the dry, hot, uh, like southwest U.S., it's probably, it's not so bad because parasites need, you know, they need their optimum environment to effectively go through their uh, life cycle and molt and do all their gross things that they do that I'm going to start talking about now. But anyway, uh, the parasites that I'm going to talk about today, like some of them are more of a problem in some areas than others. But uh, these are kind of the big ones that we we think about and talk about because they're the most common ones. Common things happen commonly, and uh, these, are the, these are the guys we worry about in terms of keeping the numbers low in our goat and small ruminant patients. 
So the first thing that I'm going to talk about is what we call the HOT complex, H-O-T, um, and that is a group of strongyle nematodes, uh, and H-O-T stands for Hemonchus, Ostertasia, and Trichostrongylus. And those are three different genus of nematode gastrointestinal parasites that uh, affect small ruminants. They all cause different issues. They all, one by itself can cause an issue. Often you're dealing with some kind of uh, combination of multiple species. One of the things, that, like, and why we group these all together is because they're all um, classified phylogenetically. So, like, that whole kingdom phylum class order. Uh, family genus species uh, they're all in the same until you get down to family and then they break off when you get to genus and species so physically they have a lot of really similar characteristics and when you look at a fecal float guys you cannot tell these parasites apart by looking at their ova period I hear people talk about oh I looked at a fecal and there were you know 500 hemonchus eggs per gram and that's not entirely accurate because you don't know that those were hemonchus um, there are some papers out there about tagging certain ova, trying to figure out ways to we could tag ova with like fluorescent markers and things like that. But your standard old fecal float um, by centrifuge or your like at home McMasters, strongyle eggs are strongyle eggs. It doesn't it doesn't matter like what they are when I send even when I send fecals to my lab they don't report out oh these are ostratasia and these are homonchus they just report them out as you know 700 strongyle eggs per gram and that's that's enough information for me for uh, a fecal egg count which I'm going to talk about in the third part of this episode not so much today the important thing to think about right now is that these guys are all Hymonchus, Ostertasia, Trichostrongylus are all um, like close enough related that you can't tell their eggs apart on a float, period. Um, I'm going to not talk about these in the order that they come in the HOT. So we're going to talk about Ostertasia first. Um, these are also called like brown stomach worms. Um, there's a couple different species that are... Um, more like more commonly pathogenic for goats and sheep and if I recall correctly it's ostertasia I can't remember and then the other fun thing about ostertasia is there used to be two species it was ostertasia circumcincta and ostertasia something else and then one of those has changed to the genus name telodesargia which is just one of those things that scientists do every once in a while where they're like, oh, this isn't really classified right. Maybe they did some, like, DNA testing or something like that. And they figured out that it, sh it fits better else somewhere else. But Ostertasia, brown stomach worm. These guys have a pretty uh, typical parasite life cycle where um, there's multiple larval stages of, of most of these gastrointestinal parasites. They molt um, in the environment, and I think the L3 is the infective stage for Ostertasia. So those are just different larval stages. L1 is the first, L2 is second, and then L3 is the infective stage. Those are just, we change their names when they molt. It doesn't matter too much, really. Um, but basically, animals pick them up by eating the infective larva, 
on the ground and then these guys they're digested they go through the rumen and they get to the abomasum and they are they burrow into the abomasal mucosa and they'll just like sit there for a while and they go in the like they go in through the gastric glands and they get under the mucosal surface and they make these little nodules and that's kind of annoying for a couple of reasons one of the reasons is that they can just sit there for like an indeterminate period of time uh, we don't really know why they just kind of go into this it's not like uh, suspended animation where they'll just sit there and they don't really do anything we call it hypobiosis in uh, parasites it's this little like it's just like a pause in their life cycle where they're like I'm just gonna go hide in this animal's stomach and bury myself in its mucosal tissue and hang out until I feel like coming out and cup so that's annoying because it disturbs the animal's ability to for its abomasum to function so like affects its ability to make like stomach acid and things that are required to digest the stuff that's going through its abomasum it's like physically disrupting the surface of the abomasum uh, so the ability to absorb anything, the ability to secrete anything is all messed up. Uh, there's some really great pathology pictures that I'll probably I'll probably post on Instagram and um, yeah, I'll try I'll try to make some show notes, guys. Um, I'll try I might like post my PowerPoint for this presentation that I'm doing on the website, and so you can see some pictures of what the inside of the abomasum looks like when uh, these. Uh, Ostratasia brown stomach worms are burrowing into it, but it's like a lumpy bumpy and it looks it looks wrong basically. Um, so they'll just sit there. Um, the other thing that's annoying about the nodules is that when they're in there, you can't really get rid of them. There's our deworming products that we have don't reach them. They're buried in that animal's tissue and there's not a lot you can do about it. Uh, symptoms of an ostratasia infection, weight loss, diarrhea. Um, these guys can get hypoproteinemia, which is doctor word for not enough protein in the blood. And this can lead to bottle jaw. So bottle jaw is not also like uh, a clinical sign that is exclusive to Hemonchus. Hemonchus does not have the market on that. Bottle jaw is not a disease. It is a clinical sign or a symptom of decreased protein in the blood. So loss of protein in the blood, if you remember like chemistry or biology where you talk about like osmosis, must be chemistry, right? Um, where there's not enough protein in the blood, the protein makes that like osmotic gradient keep water in the vessels. If there's enough protein in the blood, then water has to follow the protein to stay in the blood to keep that osmotic gradient even between blood and tissue. When there's not enough protein in the blood, the water's like, oh, I have to even things out, and it goes outside of vessels. So that's what bottle jaw is. It's edema. It's fluid outside of the blood vessels where it's not supposed to be. It's not a disease. It's a symptom of protein loss. Most commonly in small ruminants, protein loss is due to parasites, but there are other reasons that you can have bottle jaw hypoproteinemia in goats. 
So a little aside there about that. Um, Ostratasia, because of its hypobiosis, which is again that like living in those little nodules and kind of like taking a nap for a while has what we call, there's like two different types. It can be like type one ostratasia, ostratagiasis, um, which is like basically direct life cycle of those parasites. Often happens to young animals um, that are exposed to large numbers of infective larvae all at once. So it doesn't have anything to do with those nodules. It's probably like younger animals, um, a year-ish old. They go out on pasture. They're exposed to large numbers of those larvae that immediately just infects and, and affects their abomasal function. Type 2 ostratagiasis has to do with um, that nodule hypobiosis thing. So those little worms are all sitting in there in the abomasal mucosa. They're sitting there under the surface of the, the inner surface of the stomach, hanging out, and then some event happens... And we don't quite know what this is, uh, maybe seasonal, so have something to do with like cell signaling factors and like daylight hours or different hormones or temperature changes. We don't know what it is, but often when these um, insisted larvae emerge from the abomasal mucosa, they do it all at once. And this tends to be in older animals because they've had time to go through that uh, insisted state with these worms. And they, um, they come out and then that causes clinical signs. So when they're sitting there in the abomasal mucosa, they may not have severe clinical signs, but then they all erupt and they disturb that tissue and diarrhea, hypoproteinemia can cause acute death in animals that are not equipped to handle this or if there's a very large parasite burden. So that is ostratasia. Um, next, I'm going to talk about tri trichostrongylus. Um, I can't remember what the... I call these like thread... not thread worms, maybe? I can't remember um, what the... what the... Uh, kind of non-scientific name is. <laughs> My brain is not functioning on that at the moment. Uh, Trichostrongylus, there is the family, or sorry, the genus name, and then there are like many, many, many species of tri Trichostrongylus. Um, they tend to be pretty species specific. Um, they, so like there's human Trichostrongylus, uh, there's horse ones, there's most mammals, like if you think of a mammal, there's probably a trichostrongylus that is for that mammal. Um, the ruminant ones, so especially sheep and goats, and then also cows to a certain degree, uh, maybe can pass these between themselves enough because they're all ruminants. And that rumen digestive system environment is enough like similar between those animals to like for those for those parasites to complete their life cycle um the basically this trichostrongylus have the same kind of life cycle as ostratasia um they they're larval stage that's infective is their l3 the l3 larva gets eaten up by 
our goats and then goes into the abomasum and the small intestinal mucosa so this is a little bit species specific too so there's a couple different species that um, can affect our small ruminants and it uh, they can do that insisting thing too they make their little gross nodules they mature while they're hiding out under that mucosal surface and then they can erupt and cause issues diarrhea hypoproteinemia um, these guys do drink blood, the trichostrongylus, but they are very, they're the smallest, uh, like physically smallest parasite of the hot complex. So just physically, they're about maybe like half the size of Ostertasia and maybe like quarter of the size of Hemonchus. Um, you have to, so being small, you have to have a lot, a lot, a lot of them to have clinical disease caused primarily by trichostrongylus. Lastly, Hemonchus. Hemonchus uh, contortus, uh, probably more commonly known as barber pole worm. This is the big one that everybody gets excited about, and um, it can be the most like devastating for animals, businesses, people who are raising the animals, etc. Um, it's the physically largest parasite, like the adult stage of these three, Ostertasia, Trichostrongylus, and Hemonchus. Hemonchus is the physically the largest. Um, and I would argue that it has the most boring life cycle because it doesn't do this hypobiosis thing where it burrows underneath the mucosa and it um, like stays insisted. It just has, it gets picked up as, I think it's still L3 that's infective. Um, L3 matures on pasture, animals pick it up. It goes down to the abomasal mucosa where it matures, excuse me, where it matures and can complete its life cycle. What is problematic about these guys is one, they're very prolific. Uh, a female can lay 5,000 eggs in a day. So one adult female worm can lay 5,000 eggs. Very infective, very proliferative um, parasite. They drink blood, and they do not, um, like... They're not conservative about it. Um, there's some good pictures of like uh, electron scanning, scanning electron microscopes of the feeding end of Hemonchus, where they've got this little pointy thing where they just kind of slash into the abomasal mucosa. And I always remember from uh, second year of vet school parasitology our professor talking about how they have this like slash and tear activity where they just kind of slash open that surface and then they lap up the blood they don't really like suck in there and like fasten themselves like some of tapeworms and things like that do um so they're not only do they drink blood and um an adult worm will ingest about 50 microliters of blood a day but then they can also waste blood so you've got blood that's being ingested by the worm and then you've got blood that the, is just kind of spilling because the worm isn't like super efficient at feeding which is kind of stupid but um so another clinical sign you could see melana which is digested blood um the so like i just mentioned an adult worm can ingest ingest 50 microliters of blood a day and that's like 50 microliters of blood isn't that much but then if you have 5,000 worms that's 250 milliliters a day and then if you have 5,000 worms over four days that's a liter of blood 
So um, that's that's a very quick uh, blood loss. The animal does not have time to compensate for that. Uh, if there if there's a sudden infection with hemonchus at like a, a significant level, then the uh, the body's going to try to make more red blood cells, but the body needs at least five days to start pumping those out. And if you lose a liter of blood, if you're a goat and you like a full size dairy goat, at least a hundred pounds and you lose a liter of blood, you're going to feel it basically. And then the more days go on that happen, the more blood you're losing and you can lose animals very quickly. The other thing about hemonchus is that it tends to be a problem when the, uh, like the, in warm, moist environments. So for me, that's like summer. That's like July, August, hot and humid, grounds wet, the air's damp, everything's damp and humid and gross, and parasites just love that. Hemonchus loves that. The, the adult animals, so our... Maybe we have some animals that have like a low parasite burden, but then they have these adult females that are just hanging out in the abomasum, laying 5,000 eggs a day. That's 5,000 eggs going out on the pasture and in the warm, hot, warm, moist summer environment, they can develop quickly into their infective stage and present a problem for everybody else who's like eating them back up. So that's why it can be such a quick problem and like substantial problem. Hemonchus is definitely like the parasite, the parasite that uh, small ruminant people get excited about. So that's that. A um, couple other kind of smaller species of like not as great concern but worth mentioning right here cestodes are tapeworms um they're probably less common in my clinical experience at least up here they're gross um you know in small ruminants like these can be impressive tapeworms that are like you know like one to two centimeters wide and they can be feet long and they attach themselves to the inside of the small intestine and I the you know they're gross some I've heard some vets say like they don't get excited about it and they don't really treat it I would recommend treating it because it's gross and also because um, I have seen some lambs that needed surgery because the the irritation from the tapeworms uh, and also just the physical obstruction of the tapeworms. I think one of the lambs got like uh, into susception, which is where the intestine kind of crawls up on itself and like telescopes into itself and uh, and possibly even just like straight up mechanical obstruction if there's a, a heavy tapeworm burden. So yeah, they're gross. Um, you can try to kill them and they get expelled or hopefully they don't, your critters don't need surgery to get them out. Uh, lastly, and also, like, not as, like, common and not as, like, economically and clinically devastating most of the time, there is a, a parasite called nematodirus, which is another nematode. Um, 
the thing to note about nematodirus is that it it is very very resilient in the environment um, so in doing my research for this presentation it looks like um, this is more of an issue in uh, like large sheep flocks mostly specifically in the UK because they have a like a temperate climate where they get some cold and wet and uh, you know, it's not hot and humid all the time, and you would expect enough colds to, like, kill off some of your parasite burden, but these nematodirus are very, very uh, hardy in the environment. The eggs are very, very hardy in the environment, and the, the larval stages are pretty darn hardy as well. The other thing is that they... Um, the, the stage that is infective and causes the most damage is not the adult stage. So it's kind of like there's a delay in uh, being able to diagnose them. If you're diagnosing by a fecal egg float, uh, nematodirus, if you see it there, it's very distinctive. The ova are gigantic. They're probably like three or four times as big as your average strongyle ova, but they... Um, the L3 stage is the stage that causes damage to the gastrointestinal system of our small ruminants, and the L4 is the adult stage, which makes the eggs. So there's kind of a lag there if you are not, you know, before you can diagnose it, they have to get to that adult stage to make their eggs. So that's a little bit of something to be considered. Um, there's some interesting stuff. I found a really interesting, like, Sheep UK... Uh, page about like nematodirus forecasts about like looking at the weather and the climate and how wet it is and whether nematodirus is forecasted to be a big issue for certain areas or not which I found to be quite interesting um, I've seen a few eggs around here um, but tends to, at least in my like geographic location tends to not be super common where I am at the moment but as with all of these parasites in all the species I see small and large animals like animals are moving around more and more and when they move around they're bringing their stuff with them so that's why I've had to treat multiple heartworm positive dogs in Maine and New Hampshire in just the few years since I've graduated vet school when I was growing up that would have been like unheard of so we're moving animals around they bring their parasites with them and then we they're introduced to this whole population that didn't have them before and the parasites are like yay and I'm like boo <laughs> um so there's probably, like, I'm not going to talk about um, protozoan parasites, so coccidia, um, crypto, less generally less of a thing we think about in sheep and goats, uh, cryptosporidium, but uh, focusing on these nematode and cestode parasites for this moment, and uh, that's, uh, that's kind of all of the the players right there so this is like part one is like know your enemy these are the gastrointestinal parasites where we've got the big ones to worry about and then next week i'm going to talk about what the weapons are we have that we can try to kill them and manage them with so that's me coming at you ne next week if you have any questions in the meantime uh hit me up on the internet I will try to answer them probably in a podcast. Don't worry. I've said in the past, if you emailed me, I didn't delete it. It's there. 
I'll try to answer your questions ASAP. Um, but I think that's going to do it for the moment, and I will talk to you guys next time.